Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Lexicon Valley is sponsored by The Great Courses, offering engaging audio and video lectures taught by top professors. Courses like Language A to Z. Right now, get up to 80% off the original price when you visit thegreatcourses.com lexicon. The following podcast contains explicit language. From Washington, D.C., this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm Bob Garfield with Mike Volo, and today, episode number 57, a new installment of Linguafile, wherein we discuss a mystery word or phrase with lexicographer Ben Zimmer. Hey, fellas. Hey, Bobby. How you doing, buddy? Splendid. Thank you. Yourselves? I am well. Ben, yourself? I'm doing fine. Can't complain. So I just want to point out, guys, that this is Linguafile number 10, Seemed like an appropriate time to pause and reflect. Bob, I am going to read to you the nine words and or phrases that we've had thus far and try to divine some sort of Zimmeronian, Zimmeresque, Zimmer, what's the adjectival form of Zimmer? Zimmerian? Some sort of Zimmerian pattern here. Mm -hmm. uh, we've had discombobulate, lanyap, orange, snark, get one's goat, Grog, cockamamie, quiz, and carnival. What can we learn about Mr. Zimmer here? Well... If we had to psychoanalyze this guy. Yeah, I think... Well, <laughs> one thing I noticed right off the bat is that all of these words, some more exotic than others, are composed of letters. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they all suggest to me a, a distant father and an over-involved <laughs> mother. <laughs> 
Oh, you're getting me discombobulated now. <laughs> All right, That's a pretty, uh, pretty cockamamie explanation, if you ask me. <laughs> Dude, it's uh, a quaz. What a quaz. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Ben, what's today's clue? Well, listening back to the words we've covered so far... I think we all have fond memories of that cockamamie episode. There was something special about that one. Yeah, I agree. This time around, I'd like to present another four-syllable word. And like cockamamie, for the clue, we're going to break it down into two parts. So for this four-syllable word, the first two syllables sound like a kind of a fire engine. Hmm. And the second two syllables sound like a small amount of money. See if you can figure that one out. Like siren? Is that what you're going for for the first two? No, the siren would be part of a fire engine. We're talking about a type of fire engine. Type of fire engine. Oh, like a ladder truck or a pumper or a hook and ladder. Well, it can't be a hook and ladder. That's not Pumper nickel. Oh, there we go. Bob said pumper. (laughs) And Mike put it together with nickel. I'm I'm going to go. Pumper nickel. (laughs) I I, I have no role here. I don't think Mike would have gotten it if you hadn't said pumper, though. I think that was the spark. Nonetheless, I'm going to go mulch the garden. You two carry on. (laughs) Pumper nickel happens to be possibly my favorite bread. I can't imagine ordering a bagel that wasn't pumper nickel if pumper nickel was an option. Let's just put it that way. All right. Bob, how do you feel? I think... At this stage, after 10 episodes of a linguophile, the three of us have established a kind of relationship with the audience, right? I mean, I don't think we're just performers. I think this is, in its way, kind of a conversation that we have with our our fans. And I would like to put it to that community. Is there any among you who gives a shit about Mike Volo's favorite sandwich bread? (laughs) (laughs) You know, Bob, I'd love to hear your pumpernickel experiences. You know, like with cockamamie, that seemed to unleash some childhood memories. Do you have some (laughs) childhood memories of pumpernickel that you'd like to share? Yeah, it was one of two bread products which struck me as being entirely redundant to a rye bread. There's your marble rye, which has a swirling pattern within it. Mm -hmm. Still tastes like rye bread because of the caraway seeds. And pumpernickel, which is darker and maybe a little coarser, but still has caraway seeds, and it still tastes like rye bread. So I never understood, actually, the reason for it to exist. And it was one of those childhood mysteries that lingers to this day unresolved. I think pumpernickel has a little bit of a different taste from rye bread. It's a little pumpier. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, actually, in like the North American version of pumpernickel, it really isn't that different from your standard rye. They add some ingredients for color and for flavor, Apparently, they may use molasses or some cocoa powder to get it that nice shade of brown. But actually, that's just a way of trying to imitate what the original pumpernickel looked like. Mm. And you can probably guess where that original pumpernickel might have come from. Perhaps Deutschland? Deutschland, indeed. Yes, the German pumpernickel, specifically from the Westphalia region of Germany, which is in the northwest part of Germany. And the way you would make Westphalian pumpernickel is a little different. You would use rye flour, but it would have to be coarse rye meal. And then you bake it for a very long period of time, very slowly. And it's the baking process that actually gives the bread its brown color. So that's the answer to my question, Ben, that puzzled me as a kid when I, you know, would see a rye bread and a pumpernickel in the same drawer, not understanding what the difference was. (laughs) A pumpernickel for Americans 
It's just like a decorator rye. Basically, yeah. I mean, but, you know, Mike is on the pumpernickel bandwagon. Maybe he feels differently about it, but I don't see much of a difference besides its color. I would submit to a blind taste test between a piece of rye bread and a piece of pumpernickel. All right, we'll set that up. (laughs) So, Ben, is the German word just that, pumpernickel? Is it the same word in both languages? Yes, German does use pumpernickel. There have been some variant spellings over the years. That first vowel could be an O, pumpernickel. You could even have the first letter be bumpernickel. The first letter could be a B. But yeah, the standard German form, like in English, is pumpernickel. Although, of course, in German, you'd have to capitalize it. But otherwise, it's the same. I know an itsy-bitsy little bit of German. There's nothing about either half of that word, either the pumper or the nickel, that is reminiscent of any other German word that I've encountered. Is it etymologically clear where that name came from? It's relatively clear, but that hasn't actually stopped people from coming up with all sorts of very fanciful folk etymologies to explain it. And Ben, just to be clear, when you say folk etymologies, what that implies is that these are etymologies that are most likely false. They have been popularized as tales and told throughout time because maybe they sound good, because maybe they appeared once in a publication and got repeated. So before we get to the actual roots of the word, let's talk about maybe a couple of these stories. Well, one very popular version of the story surrounds Napoleon and his horse. And, you know, that's kind of a red flag right there. If, if you have an etymology <laughs> and it involves Napoleon and or his horse, it's probably bogus. I mean, you should know right off the bat. Well, I would say if it involves one or the other, you're on safe ground. <laughs> but, now, if it were to involve Catherine the Great and her horse, <laughs> oh, then boy. we'd be on to something. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know the name of Catherine the Great's horse, but according to this story, Napoleon's horse was named Nicole. You could spell that N-I-C-O-L. If you're doing the French name, which is a shortened form of Nicholas, you could say Nicole. Mm. So the story goes that Napoleon, he's busy invading Germany, and he's sort of marching through this part of Germany, Westphalia, where they serve this dark rye bread. You know, he asks for something to eat, and they give him this bread. And he tastes it, and he decides, oh, this is not good, what he's been served, this sort of local bread. And he says in French something like, c'est du pain pour Nicole. So this is bread for Nicole, my horse. Uh, Pain pour Nicole, pumper Nicole. Right. Or a slightly different version of the same story. Napoleon says, c'est bon pour Nicole. So it's good only for his horse, Nicole. Hence the sometime spelling that you get that you alluded to with the B. Well, it's interesting, actually, yeah. I mean, one interesting thing about folk etymology is that sometimes stories are so popular, the way that they break down the word, it can actually shape the appearance or the spelling of the word. And so this whole idea that this was bread that was only good enough for a horse named Nicole was popular enough that sometimes in um, early sources in English, German, French, you would actually see the name of the bread spelled as bon pour nickel, coming from that French explanation of it. My favorite part of that story, in your telling of it, Ben, is the way you commenced by saying, Napoleon was busy invading Germany. <laughs> and, you know, I'm thinking of Madame Napoleon nagging him to like change the light bulb in the refrigerator, and he's like... 
Can't you see <laughs> I'm busy invading Germany? Yeah. The honey-do list can wait until later. <laughs> so, yeah, Napoleon was busy invading Germany when? Sometime in, what, the early 19th century, I guess, would be when the Napoleonic Wars were going on. Yeah, first decade of the 1800s. So that's a great story, and it's been repeated far and wide. Apparently, Roger Moore told Johnny Carson that story on The Tonight Show once. Um, I'm not sure how the subject came up, but Roger Moore was uh, peddling that story, too. Roger Moore being the actor who played James Bond in many of the Bond movies. Indeed, indeed. And so I guess he ran out of things to talk about, so he started talking about where Pumpernickel comes from. I really like that story. Not to boast or anything, but I once stayed in the Roger Moore suite in some uh, fancy hotel in Copenhagen. Were you served pumpernickel by any chance? That I don't recall. There were some uh, fish items that have kind of stayed with me, though. So, Bob, you're suggesting that our listeners don't give a shit about my predilection for pumpernickel, but yet they're really fascinated by where you stayed in Copenhagen. Hmm. Okay. Um, I guess I have to offer a plea at this stage. I won't say guilty, and I won't say not guilty, Shall I say nolo contendere? Because, uh, you know, I think you have me nailed. Well, I was going to say, Ben, that I really like this story. I like the idea that we get a German word that has a French phrase as its origin, and then it changes spelling and pronunciation to combine into a single word that we now have imported into English. It all sounds very international and fun. I, depending on where this goes, I may just choose to believe this particular explanation. (laughs) Okay, well, you can choose to believe it, but the whole Napoleon part, that's not going to fly because this word is much older than Napoleon. I mean, it was being used in Germany before Napoleon was born. So let's just take Napoleon out of the equation. Okay. But we can still hold on to that French bon pour Nicole explanation if we don't make Napoleon part of the story. In fact, the very first appearance of Pumpernickel in English was in a book called The German Spy by a man named Thomas Ledyard. And he also gives this fanciful explanation of where it comes from. I mean, it's kind of a fascinating book by a fascinating figure, this guy Thomas Ledyard. He was British, but he spent much of his early career in Hamburg, He was secretary to the British representative of the Hamburg city-state of the time. He managed the Hamburg Opera. I'm not sure how he managed to do that in the 1720s. And he also fancied himself an etymologist. There was a famous lexicographer back then in the 1730s named Nathan Bailey, and he published a dictionary called Dictionarium Britannicum, And Ledyard is actually listed there as the etymological consultant, basically, for this dictionary. And he's actually described on the title page as a professor of modern languages in Lower Germany. But he might have just kind of made that up. I'm not sure. (laughs) But he knew quite a lot about language and had spent lots of time in Germany. So it seems like he would be a good and reliable source on matters such as this. He seems like a kind of Zelig-like character (laughs) with a bit of charlatan thrown in. (laughs) Well, he certainly got around. And he wrote this book, The German Spy. I mean, maybe it sort of fits his personality. It's entitled The German Spy in Familiar Letters Written by a Gentleman on His Travels to His Friend in England. So supposedly, it's a series of letters that describe travels through Germany 
and that there was this anonymous gentleman who was writing back to his friend in England. But that's all just, you know, his kind of framing device to give us his rather satirical descriptions of German society, both high and low. So this is a nonfiction book published in, what, the 1730s? Yeah, 1738 is when it appears. And these series of epistolary essays in this book, they are factual for the most part. They are his observations of Germany and German life and customs and culture at the time. Well, we don't quite know how factual it is. Obviously, it was based on his own observations. But because he attributes it to someone else, this gentleman, he can probably fabricate a little bit and nobody's going to call him on it, I suppose. And so where in the series of these letters does Pumpernickel come into play? It actually shows up right at the beginning of the first letter. He's talking about how they're trying to get to the capital of Westphalia, which was Munster. Mm, Pumpernickel with Munster cheese, by the way. Delicious. (laughs) There you go. A local treat. So the gentleman and his traveling companion are on their way to Munster, but they have to travel through what is described as a miserable village. But apparently this village was teeming with pumpernickel. Well, you might think pumpernickel's great now when you have it as a pumpernickel bagel. But at the time, pumpernickel was not a kind of bread that you would want to eat. So here is how Ledyard describes it. He says, During our supper, having heard of a sort of bread which is their chief food in this country called pumpernickel, I had the curiosity to call for a slice of it, which being hewed with a hatchet from a large loaf of at least a bushel, was accordingly served on a wooden trencher with great form, but I had enough of the looks of it not to be tempted to taste it. So he just takes a look at it and he's like, no way am I going to eat that. I thought I might want some pumpernickel. (laughs) No. (laughs) Count me out. (laughs) So... Well, when it's served up like a piece of firewood, I can see how that might... uh... You know, reduce the temptation just a bit. Where's his sense of adventure, though? (laughs) Well, it gets worse just from his description of it. So here we go. The color of it is a dark brown, pretty near approaching to black. And by the hue, one would take it to be a compound of some very filthy materials. Upon inquiry, I found that it was made of rye, coarsely ground, with all the bran left in it and that there had not been the greatest care taken to sever it from the pieces of straw, hair, and other nastiness, Uh, which had been uh, swept with the corn from the threshing floor. (laughs) Oh, my God. It reminds me of the plaster in 18th century houses, which, you know, has horse hair holding it together. In the midst of it, I guess, to bind it and give it strength. But (laughs) Yeah. Now, again, Ledyard may be embellishing just a tad just to sort of paint this picture of this incredibly disgusting kind of bread. So after he gets through the uh, description of how gross it is, he says, I was curious to know the etymology of the strange name they gave it. But my inquiry outreached the sphere of our landlord's knowledge, and I had remained in ignorance of this important secret had not a fellow who took care to inform us that he was the schoolmaster of the village laid down his inch of pipe and solved the matter. Wait, laid down his inch of pipe? (laughs) He had a pipe in his mouth, which he laid down so that he could explain the etymology of pumpernickel. But his pipe was only an inch long? (laughs) (laughs) Hey, they're poor, you know. They can only afford inch-long pipes. Uh, This is headed in a direction I I feel we... we... (laughs) I I didn't know if that was a euphemism or... (laughs) Laying down pipe is in itself (laughs) a uh, 
a metaphor. Well, yeah, mm. laying pipe is <laughs> is a sexual metaphor. <laughs> yes, but it's only an inch. So anyhow, so we have the schoolmaster of the village, and he's the one who knows the important secret, as he calls it. And so here is the schoolmaster now speaking. He says, a Frenchman traveling through this country and asking for bread had a slice of this sort, for we have no other, presented him, upon which he cried out, C'est bon pour Nicole, or as our parish priest interprets it, that is good for Nicholas, a name, it seems, he had given his horse, which words, in imitation of our betters, we have engrafted into our language, and thence produced the barbarous word pumpernickel. Wait, 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 wait. So you're serving this crappy bread, yeah. and some smart-ass Frenchman comes and samples it, insults yeah. it, and you mm-hmm. say, hmm, perhaps we should call our bread that. <laughs> In imitation of our betters. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it seems a little strange to think they had such an inferiority complex that they would say, oh, yeah, okay, we're going to call this good for the horse bread because the French guy said that. All right, let's pause briefly here to talk about our sponsor, The Great Courses, and in particular, a lecture series they have that I am currently fascinated by. It's The Story of Human Language, which, if you are a Lexicon Valley listener, you, I'm sure, will also find fascinating. It's taught by Dr. John McWhorter of Columbia University, who is absolutely fantastic, and just like in these individual linguophile episodes that we do, which each one being the story of a word in a sense, this series is the story of language writ large, a story that stretches back more than 100,000 years ago. Of course, The Great Courses offers more than 500 different courses on just about any topic you can think of. I think of their catalog a bit like I think of those old paper catalogs that I remember getting at the beginning of each semester of college. It was like paging through a series of possibilities. Of course, in college, you had tests and exams, and it was a lot more stressful. Here, it's none of that. You just get to learn about linguistics, about history, about psychology, about so many fields of academia. You can order from eight of their best-selling courses, including The Story of Human Language, at up to 80% off the original price. It's a really great deal, 80% off. So don't wait. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash lexicon. That's thegreatcourses.com slash lexicon. Okay, back to Pumpernickel. So again, we have this horse named Nicholas story, only it now far predates Napoleon. It's just some random French dude who has an attitude problem. Yeah, and in fact, this story about the bread actually goes back in the German language before that in the 17th century, but given as a kind of a playful explanation, not really something that was expected to be taken seriously. Apparently, it was a joke that people eventually took in a serious way and created an elaborate story out of it, sometimes involving Napoleon. So this joke you're saying goes in German back to the 1600s. That's correct, yeah. But if we look at how that word was actually being used, independent of that lovely story, we'll see how Pumpernickel actually was formed, how the word was formed independent of that story. So it's like we have a treasure map and we're digging for gold. Or we're digging for nickel, maybe. I don't know. (laughs) Yes, we're looking for nickel, but we actually unearthed some fool's nickel. 
but somewhere <laughs> nearby, the actual nickel is just buried, waiting to be unearthed. Pretty much. And, uh, you know, for these German sources, I don't personally read German, so I'm relying on the great research of uh, some etymologists who have uh, studied this material. There is an etymologist named Anatoly Lieberman, who's at the University of Minnesota. And so what uh, Lieberman points out is that if you go back to those uh, 17th century German sources, pumpernickel was not just the name for bread. See, we get hung up on the idea of it being bread, and so we come up with this elaborate story about the horse named Nicol. But in fact, even before it was attached to this brown bread from Westphalia, the word pumpernickel could refer to a man or possibly a child who's short and fat. It was a figure in children's songs. Someone actually named pumpernickel shows up in children's songs. And he may be mischievous. He's often in trouble. He's a laughingstock. He's a figure of fun. There is something called singing pumpernickel, which apparently historians aren't quite clear what that involves, but it was probably obscene and probably had something to do with people fighting with each other. Possibly laying pipe. <laughs> pipe might have been involved. <laughs> so there's this figure that is called pumpernickel that shows up in sort of this German folklore of the period. As Anatoly Lieberman puts it, pumpernickel emerges as a vulgar clown, a prankster, the hero of drunks and whores, a figure typical of low popular culture. You know, Ben, what you're describing reminds me of the Italian character Pulcinella from the Commedia dell'arte, from which our punch of Punch and Judy is derived, a kind of comic, vulgar character. Yeah, I mean, I think there were plenty of sort of comic, vulgar characters of Europe, and this might have been one of them who had this name. And so it could be used, again, to name the character, or it could be used to describe a person... And that person had to be somehow kind of devilish. So basically, you know, in the 17th century, pumpernickel meant something like a devil, a malicious spirit of some sort, a goblin, you can say. And so when you have that background, then you start to wonder, okay, this term pumpernickel was being used, and then it gets applied to the bread as somehow being devilish. Now, none of this actually communicates to me the roots there in pumpernickel None of what you're saying to me allows me to understand the strict etymology of the word yet. Well, let's break it down and see where we get with that. Now, it just so happens there's a German word, pumpern, which means to fart. Okay. And you can have similar words that describe different kinds of farts. Suddenly the horse hair doesn't sound quite so bad. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, we're going we're gonna to be talking about farting for a while. So just, you know, get ready for the flatulence here. We have the word pumpern, which means to fart, to break wind. And then there are also other similar German words. A big fart would be called pumpf, P-U-M-P-F. But a small fart would be pimpf, P-I-M-P-F. Just change the vowel, a little sound symbolism there. Mm -hmm. So we've got the pumper part accounted for. And then we have the nickel part. We have nickel appearing in German as a form of Nicholas, but it's specifically used around that time period to refer not to St. Nicholas, not to Santa Claus necessarily, 
but quite an opposite figure. Ah, so isn't the devil sometimes referred to as Old Nick? That's right. In English, we talk about Old Nick as a name for the devil. So Pumpernickel is a little farting devil? Well, uh, <laughs> it's shaping up that way, isn't mm, it? Tasty. Yeah, so. <laughs> I, I, I guess I should now at least choose this point to fall on my sword <laughs> and acknowledge that in my very, very limited understanding of German, I somehow <laughs> failed to see two very obvious <laughs> roots for both Pumper and Nickel. <laughs> and I guess well, I have to, uh, guess I got to go back to class. Yeah. <laughs> But, I mean, this is shaping up to be actually a better story than the story of Napoleon and his horse, I think. And it actually has the virtue of probably being true. So is the implication here that pumpernickel bread gives you gas? Yes, that is one very strong possibility that this bread was not, let's say, the most digestible kind of bread and that it could make you flatulent. Mm. And so it would be appropriate to use this term, which had already been used in other parts of Germany, not just in Westphalia, this word pumpernickel, to refer to, uh, you know, a devilish kid or this folkloristic kind of mischievous character, to call the bread farting Nicholas, farting Nick, farting devil, because it would have that effect on you, possibly. It would turn you into one. <laughs> not the greatest branding, if you ask me. <laughs> right. Yeah, well, if you think about it, calling the bread good for your horse could be a step up from calling it, you know, farting devil bread. Yeah. <laughs> so this is really the strongest possibility, and, and there's a lot of sort of supporting material for it, too. Did you know that nickel, as in what we use to make those five-cent pieces itself, comes from this uh, word for a devil or a devilish spirit? -uh. It's true. It's true. No, it comes from the element Whatever yeah, but where do you get is. the name of the element? <laughs> <laughs> the name of the element, Bob, was not delivered to us from God. <laughs> <laughs> no, evidently from Satan. But uh, <laughs> why would you name a metal after the Prince of Darkness? I'm, I'm not getting that part. So nickel actually comes from a longer German word, which was kupfernickel. Kupfer meaning copper. And by German standards, that's a pretty short word. <laughs> that's right. So, so kupfernickel is a nice little German compound there for copper devil that was used by a mineralogist in the 1750s named Kronstedt. And he was actually trying to get copper, but instead he was dealing with nickel and he didn't realize it at first. And so he gave it this name copper devil because he couldn't extract the copper from it. Ah. All he was getting was this other thing which he called kupfernickel, and eventually that just gets called nickel. Not realizing that the nickel itself had value. But nowadays, you know, I'm a mineralogist, and I'm digging for copper and get nickel. I, I say, <laughs> either or. <laughs> Oof, wow. Okay. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. I'm, I am disappointed, <laughs> and I reject your indifference to that joke. Now me, I'm a mineralogist, and I looking for copper, and I get yeah. nickel. I'm saying either or. I think you had to dig a little too deep for that one, Bob. Eh. But <laughs> <laughs> anyhow, so we've got the nickel is the devil in the kupfer nickel. There, it's the copper devil that happens in you know the 1750s. There's another one, cobalt, which has actually a very similar name. Cobalt itself comes from a German word, kobold, 
which was like a kind of a goblin. They were, you know, trying to get metal from the ore, and all they were getting was this poisonous kind of thing when they were smelting it. But then uh, in 1735, I guess they realized that they actually had a new metal, and they called it cobalt, originally kobold as a word meaning goblin in German. Old German metallurgists, when they were unsuccessfully trying to extract a particular metal or a particular ore from the ground, they would name it out of frustration, it sounds like. (laughs) Yeah, and apparently the German miners there had a pretty active kind of mythology where if they were having some sort of trouble like that, where they couldn't get the ore that they wanted, they would just chalk it up to some goblin or some devil that was causing them trouble. So that's why you could say, oh, well, it was just nickel. It was just old Nick who wasn't letting me uh, get the copper that I wanted. So the metal that we now know as nickel... Obviously, once they found out that it had nothing to do with copper, then the copper part got chopped off, and it was just called nickel, I'm assuming. Yeah, and it does appear to be related to uh, Old Nick in English as a name for the devil, although that has also accrued lots of different etymological explanations. Why do we call the devil Old Nick? Well, you know, one story has it that it was because of Machiavelli, Niccolo Machiavelli being nicknamed Nick and called the devil Old Nick in his honor. There's another story that says it's short for Old Iniquity. You just take the Nick from Iniquity. But it looks more likely that it just comes from the same German source that gives us nickel and pumpernickel. I'll reiterate, despite what I now know of its origin, and despite what Bob suggests about the indifference of our listeners, I'll reiterate that I do love pumpernickel bread. I don't really think of it as a food that necessarily makes one gassy. (laughs) Uh, I do feel like I think of it as a kind of Jewish food. That kind of reminds me of the joke about, do you know what they call Chinese food in China? Food? Food. (laughs) (laughs) Of course you associate pumpernickel with being a Jewish food. Even though it's a lovely deli staple now, we have to like turn back the hands of time and think about what was this bread really like back then in the 17th century. And that was a rough time for Germany, okay? So the Thirty Years' War had destroyed a lot of Germany. And it seems to be that the earliest examples that we have of this word pumpernickel come from the soldiers at the end of the Thirty Years' War. So, you know, maybe it was like bread that came from Westphalia that soldiers would have to eat, and they took this pre-existing term pumpernickel to describe this devilish kind of bread which uh, might have caused you a bit of indigestion. So even if Napoleon isn't involved, it seems like it may have had a military origin just a bit earlier back then in, you know, Mm. let's say around the middle of the 17th century. You can imagine a bunch of German soldiers of the time commiserating over the food that they had to eat and coming up with this colorful name for it. I think the lesson that we can draw from this is really a marketing lesson. We're describing these unpleasant gastrointestinal symptoms on the basis of this bread, but the bread's been around for 400 years. It's still called the same thing, even though it's named for the very unpleasantness that it causes. Remember Alestra about 20 years ago? (laughs) It's like uh, a fat substitute. That's right, and supposedly it didn't cause any buildup of cholesterol in the bloodstream, so you could eat all the potato chips you want. The problem was that there was a side effect attached to it, and that side effect, of course, was anal leakage. Yikes. It was uh, <laughs> rectal incontinence. I, don't, I mean, I don't even know what you would call it. 
All I know is that people would stain their drawers if they had too many Alestra-laden potato chips, and it quickly left the market. Now, if they had not called it Alestra, but instead called it something like diarrhea fat, <laughs> you see what I'm saying? <laughs> it could live for yeah. centuries. Then in the year 2300, people would still be eating diarrhea fat. Just saying. <laughs> Just saying is all. <laughs> wow. You should put that out in the market and see how it does. All right, guys. Well, it is about lunchtime. And I got to say, after the last, I don't know, 30, 40 minutes of laying pipe and farting devils and bread mixed with horsehair and diarrhea fat, I am famished. So <laughs> It's been a really appetizing episode. Yeah. Yeah, sure I, has. I, on second thought, I might just have to wait until dinner. But thanks, Ben. And if you want to talk to us about your favorite bread then you can write to us at lexiconvalley at slate.com. That's lexiconvalley at slate.com. Follow us on Twitter. That's an order at lexiconvalley. And subscribe to our feed, please, in iTunes, where you can find us by just searching for Lexicon Valley. Joel Meyer is our managing producer. Andy Bowers is our executive producer. Lexicon Valley is part of the Panoply Network of podcasts. You can find all of the great Panoply podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. All right, fellas, we done here? That's it for me. Yep, Bobby, we are done. All right, later, skaters. Tortilla, pita, bagel, white bread, yum, yum, pumpernickel. Where's my pumpernickel? Yum, yum, pumpernickel, pumpernickel bread. Hey!